Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In 1996, a former foster kid strode into Parliament and rolled up his sleeves. Now, after a political career spanning 26 years, New Zealand First's Ron Mark shares his story of resilience and resolve. In 1868, the first Māori MPs entered New Zealand's House of Representatives. Today, there have never been more Māori in Parliament. They span the political and cultural spectrum and continue to leave an indelible mark on our political landscape. In this series, we'll explore the legacies of former Māori MPs as they speak about their time in politics. I'm Mihingarangi Forbes, presenter and journalist. This is Mātangireya. My name's Ron Mark. I grew up mainly in the Wairarapa. Didn't know a lot about my whakapapa. What I'm telling you is what I've learned since the age of 37, when I started becoming more aware as who I was. So my real name is Rongo Whitiao Marka. My iwi, Naitahu, Atiawa, Ngāti Kahanunu, Raukawa, Te Arawa, Ngāti Pirau, and Whakatohia, and Rangatane. Out of all that, really, just a little Maori boy who grew up in Paihatua. I want to start by asking you a question that not many other people know. Your name is Rongo Whitiao Maka, um, a Te Arawa Raukawa chief. How did you become Ron Mark? I, I think it goes back to <clears throat> as far as I've been ascertained because, you know, as you know, I was brought up as a foster kid, and there's a lot about myself I never knew for a long time. But um, it would appear that my grandfather, when he came across uh, from this side of the coast, uh, from Horofunua, uh, went over to the Wairarapa. I guess back in that time, people chose not to use their Māori name, or they found it challenging when Pākehā and others couldn't pronounce their name. So he shortened his name, he, he used the name uh, Ron Mark as opposed to Ron Fitiol Marker. And uh, I don't know how he did it, but my, my dad, I learned, knew that he had to pass that name on to the oldest grandson, Ron Fitiol. 
uh, for whatever reason, he put down on the birth certificate, Ron Mark. And he changed his name from Apati Marker to Peter Mark. But over time, as he, as he got older, he went back to Apati Marker as well, leaving me hanging there as Ron Mark. But I never knew that until I was probably in my late 30s. What led to you coming into foster care? Oh. Well, looking back, I mean, I never, I, I grew up not knowing. Mm. All I knew was <laughs> I was a foster kid and um, I'd always hoped I'd be adopted. Yeah. I never knew to very much later in my life. One of the things that reminded me is that I, as an MP, <laughs> that's how long it took, uh, that I had the right to actually ask on the Official Information Act for my files. <laughs> and I did it while I was here. In fact, my office was just around the corner from here and, uh, and I, I, I crafted that email and sent it off and asked for my files and I read a lot there. Long and short of it is that my family was very dysfunctional. Mm. My mum and dad fought a lot. There was a lot of alcohol, a lot of abuse. And there was a, an amazing letter in there which explained the final incident written by a, a neighbour who um, took me and my sister, Angela, into her home and fed us and clothed us and wrote to the Department of Social Welfare and, and told them mm. of her observations of that day. We were all put into foster care and, mm. and as more children were born, they too were put into care. And uh, that's all I ever knew. You had a long career in the forces uh, before you came to politics. What attracted you to the army, do you think? Oh, I think a, a mix of things. If I think back to when I was a kid going to school in Paiyatua, I only ever wanted to join the army. I had foster parents, uh, LB Field, one of my foster fathers, who had been in the second division in Egypt. <laughs> and, um, and I just admired him. He never ever talked about the war, never encouraged me to join the military, but I admired him. Uh, another foster family I had, Gordon Thorburn, Derek Thorburn, my uncles Derek and uh, Uncle Lou, had all served in the Second World War. They were really good men, I liked them. I just had a thing about soldiering. I don't know why, I just wanted only ever to be a soldier. When other kids wanted to be doctors and nurses and policemen and go to university, I just wanted to be a soldier. That's all I ever And I think one of the things that probably helped that was uh, Uncle Lou uh, Thorburn. Um, as a foster kid, you go to Austin, go through some pretty tough times. And uh, I remember this one particular day sitting on the porch and um, don't know what prompted Uncle Lou to come out and check on me, but he came and looked at me and sat down beside me and he said to me, you know, Ronnie, if you'd seen what I saw the 28th Māori Battalion do in Egypt, in Africa and in Italy, you would have for, forever be proud that you're Māori. Don't ever forget that. And that stuck with me for years. And did you feel that when you joined? Um, the pride? Yeah, I think um, what I found in there was, you know, I've been fostered around from home to home and uh, gone to a lot of places. And uh, over the time, and in a very short space time from the age of three to 16, when I joined the army at 16, I guess the army was like a family that you quickly fell into. And um, I was surprised at the number of Māori boys who were there with similar backgrounds to me. Came from nothing had nothing, nothing was ever expected of them, weren't ever going to achieve anything. In fact, that's what my 
deputy principal said after he caned me on my final day at school, signed my leaving certificate and told me to get out. I was never going to amount to anything. And it was, it was strange. I met these guys and you just had this natural affinity towards each other. They became your brothers. And you did become something. You spent a good decade in the New Zealand mm. Army. Yeah, well, I, um, my departure from the New Zealand Army was um, not a good one. And it was because you know, I'd attended the New Zealand SA selection mm. with Jerry Mataprai. <laughs> Funny how things you know, work out in the end. Mm. Jerry and I got through selection. We were the only two regular force officers in that intake to do so. And I was just gutted when I was prevented from going up to Papakura by my core director, who said felt they'd invested a lot of money in me as an engineering officer. And, uh, and I'd done the, um, I had the opportunity to do the deployment to the Sinai, the very first, second part of the third deployment, all back to back. Uh, I came back, I'd gone from being a second lieutenant to an active major <laughs> in three months flat, and um, done a, I thought, a pretty good job. I, I found it hard to go back to just being routine. Mm. I needed to go to the group, to the SAS. At least have a try at being badged, do the cycle, but I, three years of fighting that fight and I got nowhere. So out of the blue, I got a, asked to attend an interview in Wellington and a British army officer came in and I was selected to go and join the Sultan of Oman's army you know, I always had a saying, you never turn down a deployment. Never. So I went. And, uh, and then I was there nine months and I was asked to join the Special Forces, and, which I did. And uh, that was four years down on the Yemen border in a military base up in the Jebel, the mountains, working with some amazing people. And I think that's always been my good fortune. I've got to work with some astonishing people who no one really knows the names of, but people who have done some amazing things for their country uh, and for the world at large, I think. Yeah, so that was hellish of an ex hell of an experience. Um, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And there were a few Kiwis out there with me. I think there were 28 Kiwis in all who just quietly left New Zealand to go and serve His Majesty. There would have been some valuable relationships and skills that you were quietly putting into your kete for later on in your political career, I imagine. Well, total immersion, you know, <laughs> total immersion into, into the art of uh, Muslim culture, mm. having Muslim soldiers, and not just Muslim soldiers, these were Jabali, these were Mahri, these were Al-Baha, these were hard, hard men who had been the enemy, who had fought against His Majesty, who were the only people we recruited into the Special Force. They were tough. And uh, they made fantastic soldiers. But doing that, you learn to call them, uh, learn to call them for and uh, you learn that on the run. Um, you learn the culture, you learn the customs, and you come to love and to respect them. And uh, good friendships, good relationships. But I will always say the most valuable thing I learned is how to how to work with people, no matter what culture, no matter what religion. And we had a simple rule. This is a bit of an irony. We don't talk politics, we work. And you put aside all of those religious differences because here there's only one goal. Some might be surprised then that you returned to New Zealand to get into politics with New Zealand first. Yeah, well, it didn't happen straight away. I mean... What were your political colours first? Well, I had, my first votes had gone to Robbie Muldoon 
And he was a soldier. And he was a man who spoke in my, my mind spoke straight. What, what was it about Rob Muldoon that you Oh, liked? he was tough. I liked the fact that he believed in himself. And you know, history was written a different story and people have their own views, but right or wrong, he would make decisions that he felt were the, the right decisions for his time. And I just love the cheekiness about him because, you know, my military career wasn't all glowing. I got into a lot of trouble. I was almost booted out of the military dishonorably as a young soldier, me and a group of mates. Well, why did you nearly get booted out? <sighs> Back in those days in Linton, I was a bit of a, you know, I graduated from Waiuru. Got on with a group of good guys, you know. I had a lot of mates who had been with me in Waiuru. And uh, we ended up in the same unit. We were pretty wild and woolly. We um, worked hard and we played hard. And not all of it was our fault. So part of it was the problem was Massey University and they should never have put, <laughs> put us in the same pubs and bars as a lot of the long-haired, bead-wearing hippies who hated the military. And at that time, you know, the Vietnam War was on and if you're a soldier, you're a piece of shit. In the eyes of a lot of young New Zealanders, they hated the military. And weekend after weekend after weekend, we were always in trouble. It all came to a head. And I got involved in a pretty nasty fight in Palmerston North. I ended up in the police cells. And I put a guy in hospital. He'd throw out a beer bottle and hit my girlfriend at the time. I took exception to that. The whole thing blew up. And I think right at that point, I think they just had a guts full of us. And there was this amazing guy by the name of Dave Mott. He was our company sergeant major. We'd gotten used to him ripping our ears off on a Monday morning on parade for our antics over the weekend and getting into trouble. But this particular day, he lined us all up. And he just said to me, he said, Mark, we're either going to make a damn fine soldier out of you or we're going to kick you out of the army dishonorably. You, you make up your mind which it's to be. And he walked off. That was the turning point. Asked for a posting, went to Burnham, started again. You know, it's, I think it's um, one of those early lessons I learned. You know, it's, uh, the guys that I hung out with, they were good mates. You know, the guys you'd go to war with, they were true brothers. But, you know, sometimes you've got to grow up. Years later, while serving in the Sultan of Oman's armed forces, Mark received a phone call that would change the trajectory of his career. And it was my mother-in-law then, Marie Therese Berry, who <laughs> rang me at about two o'clock in the morning, Oman time, woke me up and asked me, when are you coming home? And I told her, and she said, good, you're standing for parliament in this year's elections. This was 1990. Wow. Where was she having you stand? Selwyn against Ruth Richardson. Wow. And you were, in, you were up for it? I was still in uniform. No, I said no. And um, I got home and found, and found it was true. And now, she'd always been heavily involved. She was the chair of the Labour Electric Committee in Selwyn. And I'd had many arguments and many debates with her and all of her friends. And my views were always slightly right-wing. And I, I was a bit challenging for them, I think. But she always said to me, I'm going to see you in Parliament. One day I'm going to see you in Parliament. And I, yeah, yeah. But I turned it down, 1990, I found excuses not to do it. Mm. I supported their campaign, I helped, I was a worker. But then, 93 came around and 
There was no escaping and she was not letting go. And it was another one of these two o'clock in the morning discussions around a, a teapot on a formica table in the kitchen in the Burnham police station because her husband Elf was the cop. And she finally put it to me and she said, look, whether you do this or not, it's entirely up to you. But let me make it very clear, if you do not do this, I don't ever want to hear complain about anything ever again. And I talk to schools and I tell young men, that's why you should be very careful how you pick your mother-in-law. <laughs> that can get you into all sorts of trouble. And uh, so I stood. And I nearly beat Ruth Richardson. I mean, I think on election night, on the night, I was only 540 votes behind her. Specials came in from the army in Singapore <laughs> and other places and it stretched out to 880. I was so annoyed. But Bolger fired her as Minister of Finance and uh, she spat the dummy in and resigned and uh, forced the by-election. And of course, Labor came to me, but in the meantime, Helen Clark had rolled Mike and I didn't like that. After missing out on the Selwyn electorate in 1993, Mark considered standing for Mike Moore's proposed New Zealand Democratic Coalition. But Moore pulled the pin on the party and Mark soon found himself being courted by New Zealand First officials. Bert Walker kept ringing me and saying, I want you to stand for New Zealand First. And I said, yeah. And one day I was so frustrated, I, I was busy at work, the phone rang, it was him again. I said, listen, if Winston wants me to stand for New Zealand First, he'll bloody well come to my house like Mike Moore did, and he'll ask me. All right, bye, and I hung up. A day later, the phone rang. And there's a voice, deep voice, hello, Ron. Winston Peters here, I want to come and see you. I went, and what did you think of Winston when you first met him? Oh, look, I, yeah, the same sorts of things I saw in Robbie, I guess, is that, you know, we all knew about the wine box battle. We all knew about the Marty Loan scandal. I saw in him a inspirational, vibrant person who, who dared dared to challenge the orthodox, dared to challenge the conservative view. But, you know, I liked the nationalism. I liked the New Zealand first philosophy. That was true Ron Mark thinking, you know, your nation first, your sovereignty first, your economic sovereignty, security, be that domestically on the streets with a strong, good, competent police force, or a strong, reliable partner in strategic relationships internationally, protecting and advancing New Zealand's best interests, and a party that would look after veterans, a party that would look after our, and respect our women and our men in, their def in the Defence Force, and saw value on, in them, in the wider picture. That's what attracted me, and, and I got a sense of security talking to Winston that he supported my views in that space. Yeah. In 1996, Mark was elected to Parliament as a List MP, joining Tau Henare and four new Māori New Zealand First MPs, Tukuroirangi Morgan, Tutekawa Waili, Rana Waitai and Tuariki Delamere. And I was the Māori who wasn't a Māori. And what was that oh, like? the National Party thought I was a Pakistani. What was that like? Did you oh. get along with them? Well, it was a bit daunting in a way because they, they spoke te reo, Māori. Uh, I didn't. They understood whakapapa. I was learning how to pronounce the word. Um, I had not been raised in any way uh, within a Māori environment. And, you know, the best that my Thorburn whānau could do was tell me you should be proud of being a Māori mm. because we 
seen things. And I remember sitting down with Rana, who, you know, I really, you know, I like them all, you know. I wanted to bang their heads together over that time, but I love them all. They're brothers, you know. They taught me a lot. And uh, Tutukawa understood my whakapapa probably more than I did, way more than I did. Rana knew straight away, as soon as I put some papers down in front of him from Wakatu, and he said, where'd you get those? And I said, oh, they're mine, from my, my dad. He said, oh boy, that's the Rolls-Royce Māori organisation, <laughs> that one. You know, you got shares in that, you're Rolls-Royce. And then you know, so they started asking me and I told them what little bits I knew. Rana said to me, he said, you want the good news or the bad news, boy? I said, oh, give me the bad news. And he said, you're a grace. Yeah. He said, well, half your whanau are in jail. And I said, what's the good news? And he said, well, the other half are scholars and writers and academics. And I said, oh, I guess I just missed out on going to jail then because I'm not an academic. And, uh, but, you know, they were good for me because they, uh, Tōriki, taking me back up into Apotiki mm. to meet my whānau on my Nani Puhi Puhi side, um, things I never even knew and still don't understand completely. Mm. Um, the connectivity uh, back down to um, Naitahu uh, and all that came from Tutukawa. Uh, the encouragement to look deeper came from Tuku and Toe, mischievous Toe. You know, I think Toe had an affinity for him because he was a bit of a city slicker himself. You know, yes. urban Māori, oh, and I was, I'm never, I could never call myself an urban Māori, but I certainly wasn't seen by a lot of people as being Māori. Mm. In fact, a lot of people would say, well, there's the five Māori MPs, and there's Winston, who's that? Although Mark enjoyed a warm relationship with the Type 5, New Zealand First was headed for disaster. Its unpopular coalition with National eventually tearing the party apart. Where were you? Were you having to support Winston? I was the whip, the chief whip. I guess, you know, it's a funny old thing that Winston, um, he picked, he made nine people out of a caucus of 17 ministers and not me. And uh, I reminded him that the other day. But he said, no, no, Ron, I need you as a whip. You're a military man. I need you as a whip. And I said, what's a whip? He said, well, um, you just need to know this, that all chief whips eventually become cabinet ministers. I didn't know it was going to take 20 odd years, but, you know, you know, but uh, loyalty demands that you stand by your boss and stand by your leader. And if you can't stand by them, you shake their hand and you resign and you walk. I made my choice to stay with Winston and it frustrated me that the others didn't. And I can see looking back how frustrated they were. I think some people have often said to me, um, Ron, your greatest weakness is your loyalty. Same people often say, but your greatest strength is your loyalty. Mm. It is what it is. You can't trust a soldier who's not loyal. Did you continue being the senior whip through those rocky times? I, I did. I did. I, was, I whipped as long as Winston wanted me to. And um, that was right up until about 2006 or something like that. And uh, I was a good whip. I, I know that. And I worked with um, White Creech and that coalition government. Yeah, there were some tough times, but there were some hellishly good times in there and we achieved a lot of good things, you know. I had to remind Winston leading up to this last campaign. I said, you yeah, know, there's a lot of positive stuff that we've done, Winston, that you seem to have forgotten. And I said, you remember the cardiothoracic unit in Christchurch? 
35 years, the people of Christchurch had been fighting to get a cardiothoracic unit built in Christchurch. I did that. Winston backed me. New Zealand First did that and our, that coalition government with National. Despite the fact that people like David Carter and Jerry Brownlee and Bill English didn't want to do it. Now, if you were to go to Christchurch and say we're going to take it away, people would think you're nuts. Breckenridge, <clears throat> the, the fight for the, the Templeton parents against the closure of um, the Templeton Psychopedic Unit. Eleven year battle. Promises by Ruth Richardson, promises by Jenny Shipley. I got that in. Mm. And Winston backed me. And New Zealand First backed me. And we built Brackenridge. The only thing that annoyed me is that the coalition broke up and Jenny Shipley got to open it. And I stood in the crowd as just an opposition MP, uh, having fought that battle. We did so much and it's so overshadowed by the coalition breakup. Mm. But I still believe in my head that we made the right decision at the time. I know that looking back, Tūriki felt that was the death sentence for all of our Māori MPs. Mm. And I think we, we knew that. But we believed then that if we worked hard, if we nailed that coalition agreement, that we'd be judged fairly on the results. Nothing's fair in politics. Nothing. And there were tougher times ahead. In 2008, New Zealand First was voted out of Parliament following a donation scandal. Mark stood for the Carterton mayoralty and won. In 2014, he returned to Parliament, becoming Deputy Leader, but was later replaced by Fletcher Tabato. That must have been tough, or, or, or was it tough? Yeah. Or did you just oh, realise? Like, I mean, initially, it was once I knew what was going on. You know, things in New Zealand First don't happen without Winston knowing. But we always put the leadership and the deputy leadership and the whips to the vote at the start of every term. We always do that. And, um, you know, I think I did a good job in that space. The result we got was in part due to a lack of leadership around electorate levels. And, uh, and I think some people dropped the ball. They could have been in a better position. But, you know, that's it. That losing the deputy leadership freed me in many ways to just focus to become single-minded, bloody, selfishly focused on the people I love. And the military. In terms of that, yeah, you became the Minister for Defence. What did that mean to you? Oh. To go from being a 16-year-old boy soldier to make it. <laughs> Uh, you know, to hit your goal, uh, to become an officer, to serve with special forces, to serve alongside of most amazing men, but to finish your career as the Minister of Defence, having done a good job. I've seen a lot of people who've finished their careers as Minister of Defence. No, but to finish having done a good job, that's... For me, that's satisfying. What are your highlights in there? When I took up the job, I was given the job, I set my goal to become the best Minister of Defence and Minister of Veterans the country's ever had. And I knew to do that, I had to achieve. And I decided that I had two years to address all of the decisions that should have been made in the last 20. Two years. 
They had to be done. And key to that was laying policy. Lay those, those planks of policy down firm, unequivocally laying out what we were facing, what we were confronting. And from that, the rest would come, capability and uh, plans and that. I think the key was striking hard, fast, nailing the strategic defence policy statement. It was forward-leaning, it was bold, but it laid the groundwork for a very bold defence capability plan. And the small bits that I had negotiated in the coalition negotiations, which was a commitment to the $20 billion capability plan, that all came together and then we moved at speed. And we just knocked them off one after the other. I mean, my very first cabinet paper should have been, now that was just, that was awful. To be hit with a $148 million blowout on a project that should have started 10 years earlier and still hadn't even started was just like disastrous. This is my first cabinet paper. I'm taking this up. You are kidding me. But we just grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and shook it. Mm. This month, Takaha will sail back into New Zealand waters, completely refitted as one of the finest fighting frigates on the water today. And Tamana will follow her. That was that cabinet paper. But Ron Mark's crowning achievement was securing compensation for George Nepata and an apology for his brother Damien, who were seriously injured in separate accidents while serving in the New Zealand Army a campaign decades in the making. That sits alongside of, um, well, that, that is one that I've never forgotten from being a fresh-faced new member of parliament back in 1996, 97, 99, listening to the story and knowing the backdrop of all this. I served in Queen Alexander's mounted rifles. I know uh, Scorpion tanks and APCs inside out. Uh, I knew their unit and I knew Damien's story. I knew of George's story. And as I read into it, I just became extremely frustrated, angry sometimes. What I saw was a, a whitewashing of facts with facts and none of it stood up morally to me. And it was frustrating to be there in opposition voting for compensation or some sort of excratia payment at a select committee and having the government of the day turn, turn and say no. It was frustrating. You get that moment of euphoria when there's a change of government, you say, right, those people who were on my side are now in government and you go back and again, <laughs> and they say no. Now it's Bill and Ben, Pepsi and Coke, National Labor. There are times they are exactly the same. And, I, and it was just, it was daunting, it was, it was challenging. But you know, this time, this, is, this time it was my game. Now the Māori Affairs Select Committee inquiry was very unequivocal, you know. This time it was me. And I took people right back to square one and made them walk me through. And it took two years. It took two years. but I'll sleep comfortably for the rest of my life. Because I know that what I took to cabinet at the end of the day was the right thing to do. And it will never, ever compensate George. And Damien and I have had long conversations and we will always have conversations I couldn't do 
for Damien. But I know George, and I know that whānau, and I know they're strong, and I know the size of the settlement, uh, not settlement, the, the ex-gratia payment. And uh, I'm very, very comfortable that we, New Zealand, the government of the day, finally did the right thing. And I'm very proud of that. By 2020, the coalition between Labour, New Zealand First and the Greens was beginning to appear increasingly fragile. New Zealand First regularly criticising and voting down its partners' proposed legislation. The coalition, you know, tell me, how tough was that? This coalition? Yeah, the one that we've just had. Yeah, look, I, I always believe the heart of anything is the relationships. If you have good relationships, respectful relationships, good working relationships with people, you can get through things. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can get through tough times. I <laughs> found the most unlikely friends in the Green Party. And it, I know it boggled the minds of a lot of people, but um, if you're trying to push through $2.4 billion worth of expenditure on a PA, which is a mean, hungry war machine, You've got to give people a reason to not intervene. So that's about explaining yourself and explaining the paper and explaining the capability and its broader capability beyond. I think what took them totally by surprise is that I became the first Minister of Defence to talk about climate change mm. and to specifically identify climate change as a crisis and a security threat that threatens the whole world, but in particular is threatening disproportionately the Pacific. And then when I, having kicked MOD off and said, you will do a threat assessment on climate change, and uh, these are the issues that I think you need to examine from a security perspective, I th I'm not sure how they, they took that to start with, but when the paper was finally finished and I asked James Shaw, to stand with me on the podium and launch it with me, and it was my work. I just think that took them all totally by surprise. And, and once we started to work, and I was able to point out to them the amount of work in the environmental and conservation space that's done by defence. You know, the, the stuff we did down in the Antipodes, the stuff we did up in the Kermadex, it stunned them when I asked the question, and with Goldrose in particular. I said, so what do you think our biggest deployment is? And of course they all go, Afghanistan. I said, wrong. Iraq. Wrong. Our biggest deployment is Antarctica. We don't carry guns. We're there to support the science community to gain a better understanding of this planet we live on. What has happened in the past and potentially where we're heading in the future, particularly if we don't change our ways. So I think, you know, for me, I had no problems working. You know, the Greens were my partners. I respected them. And you would need to understand in a coalition government, you've got to give the partners freedom to express their view in accordance with their philosophies and to stay loyal to their policies and their constituencies. I guess if I got frustrated, it was with Labour seeking to steal the credit for things that weren't theirs. 
The Greens did it occasionally, but I could talk about it. Is that where it went wrong in the coalition, do you think? I, th I think, for, you for, know, for New Zealand first? probably some resented the handbrake. Mm. Um, probably the handbrake Were was wrong Were you guys a, a handbrake? I think we all need to respect each other's right to appeal to our own voting constituencies and to be true to our party's philosophies and, philo and policies and to learn to park stuff up for another day. Because, you know, politics is a long game. Yeah. A long, long, long game. If winning that battle costs you the war, you need to seriously consider whether it's worth engaging. And some issues maybe weren't worth engaging. One of the great things we did as a coalition government in the last term was um, determine that the history of New Zealand should finally be taught in our schools. I'm so proud of that. You know, Labor take all the credit and <laughs> wave their flags and say Labor did it. You know, the, the cabinet made that decision and Tracy Martin was right in there advocating. And so too was Shane and so too was Winston. It's a little rich of New Zealand actually sometimes to stand out there on the international stage and criticise other countries. When we still haven't started teaching our own history to our own children. And we're gonna, and this country's gonna address it. But I do hope and I do worry that we might pick and choose which history we wanna teach. There's parts there that might be difficult for us as Māori to reconcile and to have as conversations between iwi but it's not just about picking on the part of our history that is fashionable to pick on. We need to teach all the history. When did you start to consider that you might not be coming back to Parliament? I didn't want to consider that. I thought if I could win the wider upper, <laughs> it was a pie in the sky as it turned out. <clears throat> but, so you, um, you believed all the way to the end? I thought we would still come in at five. What? took me off guard was everywhere I went, people spoke well of me, to me, were very happy with my, the way I'd done my job and, and what I'd achieved. And, you know, it was, didn't matter where I went up to Waipokorau, uh, whether I went to Ekatahuna, but what I missed, I guess, was that they weren't talking about New Zealand first. They weren't talking about the party, when they were praising me and thanking me, they were talking about Ron Mark. And uh, I missed that. I, I look back to 2008, I know what it's like to be hated. Yeah. I know what it's like to be thoroughly disliked. I didn't get that sense in this last election. But then I guess maybe what I was seeing was people's response to me, not necessarily to Winston. Is it over for Ron Mark? I'd like to think that I can continue to serve New Zealand. You know, I think sometimes I'm crazy. If I'd stayed out in Sydney Street, I probably would have been a multimillionaire running a good company somewhere. I mean, I've had my time leading Māori entities and done it successfully. I've had my time with FOMAR. Mm. I've had my time as the mayor of Carterton. I've enjoyed some successes and maybe if I'd just stuck to business and stayed out of politics, I'd be a, a wealthier man. But I don't think I'd be a wealthier man inside my head. I am only where I am because of some very good people.
you know, good foster parents, a very good welfare officer. Yeah, there's some rubbish that happens when you're a foster kid, there's a lot. You know, I learned to put that stuff away. Good people came to my rescue. Good people in the army slapped me back onto the railway tracks and kept me going forward. Then I came to Parliament and I met more good people. I think I've done, I've done the job as best I possibly could. I think there's more, but not necessarily in Parliament. And if I could serve uh, New Zealand, uh, the area I loved and where I, I think I excelled was in diplomacy. And my relationships throughout Southeast Asia, through the Pacific, through the Middle East, are very, very strong. And uh, so I've mentioned that to the Prime Minister. I've mentioned it to Nanaya, and I've discussed it with Grant. And uh, if you want a safe pair of hands, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves again. I want to finish where I started, and I want to ask you, what does it feel like for you to be called Rongo Whitiao Marka now, having been not Rongo Whitiao for most of your life and rediscovering that name? I think this, <clears throat> the value in that name, um, and you know, I've grown up as Ron Mark and all my mates, my close mates call me Ronnie, but the strength and the value in that name is I think, I'd like to think, is the pride that my moko take from knowing who they are. I, I, I guess sometimes you wonder, if you'd done some things earlier, well, what would you have done differently? But you know, life presents you as you walk down that, that pathway with many forks and many alternate roads. And you know, if I'd had a normal upbringing, where would I have been? I don't know. If um, they had let me go to the SAS and do cycling and I'd been badged, where would I have gone? I don't know. But I left and I went to Oman and ended up where I am today. I believe, uh, and this room reminds me of that, I believe there are people around me all the time. And hopefully, some of my whānau who still don't know me, didn't have the opportunity to raise me. Hopefully my grandchildren, of whom they were 14, will find something they can be proud of and give them strength. Tēnā koe, rongo whitiao. Tēnā koe, mō o kōrero, thank you. Thank you, Bea. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mātangi Reia. This podcast was made possible by RNZ and New Zealand On Air. This episode was presented by me, Mihingarangi Forbes. Edited by Debbie Matthews. Sound recording by Craig Mullis. Audio design by Dean Judd. Music by Audio Network. A big thank you to Kay Almers and Tim Burnell at RNZ Commissioning, alongside Kurahotu Māori Shannon Honui Thompson. Our executive producer is Wena Harawera. Mātangirea was directed and produced by Annabelle Lee Maver and me, Mihingarangi Forbes, for Aotearoa Media Collective. Ka nui te mihi, kia irirangi te motu. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.